action. Welcome to Torn Stubs with me, photographer Robert Gershenson and Josh Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. We are back. We're back. We're here. We're queer. We want to watch movies. And we are going to. <laughs> this series, we are celebrating the best of 21st century queer cinema. And we're kicking things off with Tom Ford's 2009 adaptation of Christopher Isherwood's 1964 novel, A Single Man. Sure. In the wake of... Of the Cuban Missile Crisis, George, played by Colin Firth, is grieving. His partner of 16 years, Jim, died in a car crash along with his two dogs less than a year ago. He is alone, literally single, and suicidal. He lectures his English students, he has dinner and drinks with his old friend Charlie, played by Julianne Moore, and all seems bleak. Until a friendship with Kenny, one of his students, brings some colour back into his life. Joshua. Have you seen this film before? I have, and I've got really strong memories of watching it. I couldn't tell you where it was. I haven't got a memory like yours, but I just remember the sort of the furore around this film because it was Colin Firth um, playing a gay man. And that seemed, that was like a big deal, you know, because he was Colin Firth. He was the guy who played Mr. Darcy in in Bridget Jones. And he was always like the dashing, stiff, Mm. upper lip sort of Englishman. So for him to play a character like an openly gay character was actually like quite a big thing to happen. For me, this is when 21st century gay cinema really kind of starts to tip over, I think, because before that we had obviously some fantastic gay cinema, but the noughties in particular were were very indie. Um, sort of they weren't mainstream they weren't big posters on the underground there were films like Hedwig and the Angry Inch and Party Monster and um, you know Breakfast on Pluto like all of those really great indie films and occasionally we would have a little bright spark of something bigger like Mysterious Skin or Brokeback Mountain or Milk which was the year before this so for me this is sort of like the beginning of when gay 21st century gay cinema really sort of like got its ass in gear and started doing some really interesting stuff. I think you're right there. I, I genuinely think you're right. I think this is us coming out of the, the shadows, mm. almost, almost. I mean, there was a furore about the marketing, um, the Weinstein Company. <laughs> I said the name. The Weinstein. Yeah. The W people. Yeah. They, um, you know, they took some flack. They sort of, the poster was either just Colin Firth or it was that shot of Colin Firth and Julianne Moore lying down. So it looked like it was going to be a hetero love story. Yeah. Queer elements like a kiss were removed from the trailer. And I guess, you know, it... <laughs> I guess looking back, it's a sign of the times. Yeah. How else do you market something? How do you almost, I don't want to say the word trick, but how do you trick <laughs> audiences to come see a film about queer people when they wouldn't ordinarily go see a film about queer people? Yeah, and it was... You want them to go to the cinema on Friday and Saturday night and see the new Colin Firth film. And you'd be in for a bit of a shock because... 
he's so different in this like he he's naked floating in the ocean in the opening credits and he very quickly it becomes clear this is not the Colin Firth you know but yeah with with the marketing thing I think they were kind of just hedging their bets I think they kind of felt like um gay audiences would show up because they would be aware of it because it would have been in all of the gay publications it would have been talked about online so they knew mm. the gay audience and it's would right yeah exactly they knew the gay audience audience was there but i guess what they wanted to do was sort of temper the gay content so that yeah i guess sort of to trick or maybe to make audiences feel you know they weren't going to be shocked by this film make them feel included maybe because like you said up until that point all the you know, a lot of queer films had been indie, so they'd been very niche. Mm. So, you know, they've been made with the queer audience in mind. Maybe this is this is a turning point where films are being made not just for the the queer people in mind. They're actually being made for a much wider audiences because the themes are universal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. The themes are so universal. You know, anyone can relate to losing a loved one. Um, and anyone can relate to what um, George is going through, which is like severe depression over the loss of his loved one, his partner, his life partner. So, mm. yeah, I think, I, yeah, even though it, it seems insidious and, you know, there's a great article by IndieWire called The Degaying of a Single Man that was published around the time talking about all those shots that were removed from the trailer, even though that does feel quite insidious, maybe the the kind of like the silver lining of that is maybe it did get some... Um, non-LGBTQ plus people into cinemas and maybe they got their first taste of a fantastic um, gay film. Has your dad seen this film? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Has your dad seen this film? (laughs) But my dad hasn't lost his wife. (laughs) Yeah, my dad just gravitates to any film about someone who's lost their partner. Yeah. I don't know, actually. I'd be interested to see what he thinks. You know, the themes are universal and, you know, he's lost two wives and, you know, I've Mm. only met him once and there was your book signing the other month or March. And afterwards in the um, afterwards in the bar, he was like he was loving. He was chatting with three girls Uh and already was saying, and I've lost both my wives as if like. That's like the sexiest chat-up line ever. <laughs> he doesn't hide it away, and I, I think that's probably a, a good thing. You know, Colin Firth's no, character... No, it is a good in, thing. Colin Firth's character in this film is is sort of hiding it away, and he's a very private person. That's the thing, right? And, and look, Colin Firth is brilliant in this film, and I think this is the first... I mean, I think this is his best role. Um, I don't think he's been better before or since. And this is mm. really where he took his sort of stuffy Englishman thing and it wasn't it wasn't a parody like he is in Bridget Jones or or like how he is in Kingsman it actually feels like him being a stuffy British person actually makes sense (laughs) here you know it's a nuanced character study it is what a single man really is have you read the book no I I really it's on my list of books that I must read Um, Because I was wondering, like, is the book about an Englishman in America? Because that sort of adds another layer of alienation and isolation to the character. Yeah. I mean, Christopher Isherwood was an Englishman in America, Mm. right? He was was living in Weimar Republic. He was living in Berlin, had to leave because of the Nazis. I think he spent a little time in Australia, I think. Wow. But he ended up in California. So he is George, basically. 
Yeah. Know. Oh, he travelled to China. I'm just looking at the um, like the blurb at the beginning of. I've got a copy of Goodbye to Berlin, which I've started reading. He was living in China before moving to America. He didn't last long in China, a couple of years, and then moved <laughs> to America. Mm. But the um, the idea that you know George is very internal and he's he's hiding his misery. Do you think there's some comparisons to be made with Patrick Bateman? Oh my God. <laughs> I was not expecting you to say that. Um, God, it's been a while since I watched American Psycho. But um, yeah, I guess I guess there are some comparisons or some similarities because they both live very ordered, structured lives. Or they've got a very set way of doing things. And when those things go out of whack, the person goes out of whack. You know, when George finds that his loaf of bread hasn't frozen properly in the freezer or hasn't been taken out of the freezer by his maid... He's sort of yeah. like completely thrown by this and it's an anomaly in his day. So yeah, I could definitely see that. Obviously, um, I think that Patrick Bateman is clearly a, you know, a narcissist and a, a psychopath, whereas George doesn't seem to be those two things. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to be obsessed with himself in the way that Patrick Bateman is. He's, um, you know, he's, he's capable of loving. He's capable of actually loving somebody, whereas Bateman is completely inward looking and destructive with it i think it's down to playing a role there's a line at the beginning where tom ford is showing us how ordered his drawers are and and we see george getting ready and the voiceover says it takes time in the morning for me to become george Mm. time to adjust of what is expected of george how he needs to behave so he's talking about george in the third person and it reminds me of the line from American Psycho, where Patrick Bateman says, there is an idea of a Patrick Bateman. Yeah. They're both playing a role. Isn't George using his real name, whereas Patrick Bateman is actually a creation of the person who Christian Bale plays in that movie? Well, that, I mean, that's one way of reading it. It's an, you know, it definitely is an unreliable narrator, Patrick Bateman. Yeah. Christopher, I mean, George, oh, what's his surname? George. Georgie George. <laughs> He's Sing- just George in the book, isn't he? He's George Faulkner in the film. I can't actually remember. I can't remember what he's called in the book. But he um he's definitely not playing the role. It's definitely it's definitely him. But I think the thing with George is he's he's playing the part of gay guy playing the part of straight guy. Mm. The character, not Colin Firth. The character is playing the part of what society expects him to be, how he how society expects him to behave. Yeah, absolutely. Like Patrick Bateman is is dressing up in order to become sort of like part of the world he wants to be a part of. It's aspirational and it's also sort of like hiding. I guess it's hiding in the same way that George is. You know, George is trying to convey a particular image that is um, able to exist within white picket fence America harmoniously, whereas... Bateman is kind of like a shark. He's he's wearing this outer, outer, outer shell, but beneath it all, he's gonna kill you. That's interesting because, yeah, that that makes sense. It's kind of like, I guess, what we see in things like uh, Blue Velvet and American Psycho, where even you know, even without the the added elements of sexuality people are trying to fit into what they think society wants and actually interestingly in american beauty there is a gay couple isn't there and they're not 
trying to hide the fact they're gay. They're actually probably living more of a, you know, they're, they're living quite authentic gay lives, but they seem to be living the idea of a heteronormative <laughs> life, but without actually hiding each other. Right. But there's also the suggestion that George, George's neighbours are aware that he's gay because the little girl says, my daddy thinks that my brother is light in his loafers just like you are kind of thing. So it's like they might know yeah. the theory that he is gay, but if he presents this image of sort of like sharp-suited professor, heteronormative, he's okay, he's not dangerous. Well, maybe it's an unspoken secret. It's just they don't talk about it. They, they've obviously... You know, him and Jim lived together for 16 years. 16 years, Charlie, 16 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so maybe the neighbours are just like, well, keep them to them. Keep them to them. Yeah. It kind of also taps a little bit into um, if there is sort of like a, a, not a narcissistic, but like an image conscious um, aspect to it. It taps into this, the question of is ageing like one of the biggest gay fears that exists, sort of aging out of obscurity, aging out of, you know, the youthful beauty. Um, like, what do you think? Kenny doesn't seem to mind. Kenny played by Nicholas Holt in a in a in a in a, in a faultless performance. I don't think there's a bad performance in the entire film. There's one line that makes me cringe, but I don't think it's a bad performance. There's when the the kid. And the gun shop goes, and one for the little lady. Yeah, yeah. Like, it just makes it, I just, <laughs> I, I can't bear it. It makes me cringe. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Kenny seems to be interested in George. He could have anyone his own age. He's obviously the hottest guy at school. And he's going for George. Mm. What do you, what do you think is going on there? Because there's a really interesting thing that Charlie, um, George's friend, Julianne Moore says, where she says that, she kind of says that George that Jim was a replacement for something else um, in some way. And it's not really clear entirely what she means, but do you think that Nicholas Holt, his character, Kenny, is he using George as a replacement for something else? Well, I think Charlie, but first of all, Charlie played by Julianne Moore, faultless, impeccable accent. Yeah. You would never know she's American. She must have watched a lot of Joanna Lumley in Ab Fab to nail that so well <laughs> <laughs> just absolutely brilliant she's jealous she's jealous she she either wants george or she's forcing herself to have george because she's so unhappy with her life she doesn't want george you know maybe she she didn't want george to be with jim and now that jim is gone unfortunately he's dead she can have him back she wants george it's it's evident you know he knows when she rings. Yeah. No one calls me before 8.30 in the morning, right? She sort of kisses him too much at the end of their dinner when he's leaving. On so the mouth. I just think she's, yeah. Yeah, like, you've just been eating, love. Come on, go <laughs> But that's eating. a bit like when you've got, like, an older auntie who insists on kissing you on the mouth and you, when you're, like, younger. It's like, no, please don't. I don't like it. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> You never had that. That did not happen in my family. <laughs> Once again, this podcast just turns into therapy for Joshua. I know. I think if we're going to do a season about LGBTQ plus issues, we're going to be doing a lot of therapy throughout. 
And that's your hour up, Joshua. Yeah. If you could book in with the nurse oh, for next time. Just time time flies when you're having fun. Yeah, if you could just write in your thought diary what you feel about today's session, that would be marvellous. <laughs> um, Charlie's jealous. She wants to latch on to George. I don't think she necessarily 100% sees George's sexuality or even homosexuality as a viable family unit or not even necessarily family unit just a viable way of being and that's probably because if this is the 60s and she's probably what in her late 40s early 50s so she grew up in the 20s that you know it's it's going to be a societal thing you know she's obviously been around gays a long time you know back in London she said that lesbian was hung like a donut so she's been around <laughs> i love that line she's about been around if i stood on my head i'd be a brunette with fabulous breath and <laughs> <laughs> um, you know she's 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 been around non-heteros for a long time but maybe deep down she just has that ingrained thing where she just doesn't take them seriously they're just a bit of fun she's the mm. ultimate fag hag yeah, but it, it's sort of like a different kind of homophobia, I guess. You know, it's it's sort of this sort of like baked in belief that if you're gay, you're not a real, you're not living a real authentic life. And it's the, you know, yeah. that, that idea of the nuclear family, I guess, especially in the 60s, will have been um, so uh, embedded into the idea of, society and and you know accepted regular life even though how many people actually mm. even had that how many people were like 2.4 children well look at, i mean look at the, the people we've got in this film you've got the neighbors who the father clearly doesn't like the mum, and the kids are badly behaved and he's stressed and he has to go to whatever shit job you know it's like revolutionary road mm. you know leonardo dicaprio has to go to that shit job and the other heteronormative people is charlie and her husband left him and the only Let person <laughs> who who had a success sorry her the only person who had a successful relationship that was only that was unfortunately cut short because of a car crash was George. Mm. Yeah, and he They were genuinely happy together. Yeah, and I think he sums it up brilliantly when he says, I simply fall in love with men. Um and it's such a, a lovely, simple, concise way of saying it's not about libido, it's not about sex. It's not about fucking anything that moves. You know, it's about loving somebody and they happen to be a man. Mm. It's so beautiful. And that's why Charlie can never be his partner. She may have a man's name, um, you know, traditionally <laughs> yeah. speaking. Charlotte. Charlotte. Yeah. No one calls me before 8am. But she's also another interesting trope or sort of, like you said, she's the fag hag, but she's she's also, the, she's a kind of a, a trope that does occur within... Um, gay narratives where the female best friend is hurt in the process of a gay man living his authentic life. You know, we saw it a little bit in the way he looks. Love Simon. Love Simon, exactly. Mm, the way he looks, which we'll do in, in a couple of weeks. Yep. Oh, no, 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 we're not. Ignore that. I'm, I'm, no, I'm getting confused between gay films. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm having one of my funny turns again. <laughs> Just get a glass of whiskey, it'll make you feel better. Why do they keep each other in their lives then? Why why is Charlie in George's life and why does George keep her in his life? What draws them to each other? Mm. 
they're just sort of codependent, aren't they? They've known each other for so long. They're both aliens in America. Um, you know, they understand each other on a level that um, you assume that a lot of Americans wouldn't be able to relate to. You know, just just their common, their shared yeah. experiences of being British or being English. Um, they have that, I think, is a massive thing because they talk about London when they get together. So they've got that shared yeah. comfort and of experience. But also they clearly love each other. It just happens that Charlie loves him. Like she says, like, I love you differently or whatever. Um, he can't love her in the, in the way that she wants him to. So it's quite destructive, I guess, in some ways for her. For him, he has a good friend who is endlessly yeah. fascinated in him and, and adores him no matter what. But for her, it's actually quite a tragic position that she's in. Yeah, and she wants to go back to London, doesn't mm. she? Yeah, and you know, I you can almost sympathise with her her line of thinking as well because I'm sure there have been. I mean, just look at Gimme Gimme Gimme, that amazing TV show from the was it 90s? Mm. Oh yeah, where um, <laughs> Kathy Burke yeah. and Tom Moss's face they lived together and they were perfectly happy. So that could work, but obviously it has to be something that they both want without her living with this hope that one day he'll turn around and say, Do you know what? Let's get married and have kids because it's never going to happen. I think it's, I think it's made complicated because they were together once before. Yeah, but it must have happened years and years and years ago because it happened before Jim. Yeah, because he was with Jim for what sixteen years? Sixteen years, Charlie. <laughs> oh, sixteen How could years. I forget? <laughs> <laughs> and if this is nineteen sixty-two, let's say yeah. early sixty-three, then. That's late forties, yeah. Because you know the Jim had just come off from the war, hadn't yeah. he? Yeah, was a sailor. Yeah, exactly. There's that great line where um, that George says to Kenny when he says, "Oh, you're awfully modern." When Kenny says that he's never slept with a woman before, um, mm. and that kind of made me think. Like, do you, they kind of had this slight discussion about generational difference? And he kind of implies that it's easier for, for Kenny's generation than it was for George's generation. But do you think that every new gay generation thinks that way? That, you know, we think that the generation below us had it, has it and had had it so much easier than we ever did. I reckon so. I remember having a conversation probably around the time that we met, actually. I remember walking past my uni building with a friend at the time and I just happened to say, you know... I think we're going to be the last generation that has it really tough. I don't think people are going to have to, or, you know, generally people aren't going to have to do the whole coming out thing. It's just going to be, um, it's just going to be dropped into conversation. It's going to be a lot easier. And I think it, I think it is, you know, I look at these Gen Z's and, you know, they don't do labels. Yeah. They they just don't do labels. I know I'm generalizing you know, the people out there will be struggling anyway, you know, but I just think we're living in much more enlightened times. You know, look at Heartstopper. Yeah, yeah. We would never have had anything like that God, no. as as kids because the stories that we were seeing via films and TV were all tragedies. It was all mm. to do with AIDS. It was all, all to do with melodramatic coming out narratives. Yeah. And whilst Heartstopper is a, a, you know, it has a coming out scene, but I think it's more of a realisation film as opposed to a coming out series rather not film yeah yeah i think heartstopper is really interesting um i watched it and i really enjoyed it and obviously i bawled my eyes out at the end um 
but it's you pulled your eyes out. I bawled my oh. eyes out just because the scene with Olivia Colman. Oh, bawled! I thought you said pulled them out. <laughs> I didn't pull me out. Um, but it's interesting because it. I couldn't entirely tell who it was for. It felt like anime, which you know that's not necessarily um, for everybody. Um, and you know, for me, it felt a little bit like a fantasy. It felt a little bit like a utopia where there are issues, but there are no stakes. Like an episode of Friends. Yeah, exactly. So everything always resolves at the end with no real confrontation to speak of. It's for tweens. It's for tweens. It's, it's, for, the, it's for young audience. It's, it's, for the, it's for the young adults. It's for, it's for your target audience. <laughs> it's, it's all for you. My only concern is that it presents something of a utopia that isn't, isn't realistic. And so... I would hate for a young questioning LGBT person to feel disappointed about reality, you know? Well, I don't think anyone's going to confuse what they see in mm-hmm. in a fictional context as reality. You know, you know, I found queer as folk incredibly brilliant and, you know, mm-hmm. uh gave me a lot of hope, but I was very aware that it was you know a a hyper version of manchester and when i actually visited manchester a few years later because i was living in leeds and it's only a hop skip and jump over up the m62 it it you know you can you can feel the 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 vibes of queer as folk but it's not queer as folk Mm. um i want to talk about kenny and you 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 brought him up he's a brilliant character because he is in a number of years going to be part of the peace and love generation yeah. he's going to be he's going to be going down to woodstock and you know being part of the the counterculture he's going to be the sort of person that goes to the cinema to see easy rider because that's what people you know that's what people like him who were outside of the norm were doing mm. if george hadn't have died what involvement do you think he would have had with kenny potter after that night it's hard to say because the sense that i got from their relation like that that brief days relationship that they had it seemed like kenny was somebody who was searching for guidance for somebody to show him this world that he kind of sensed was out there which is the queer world he sensed it was out there but he didn't really know how to sort of discover it how to chart a course through it and so i felt like he was bringing sort of like a youthful exuberance and passion for life to George who needed that. And George was bringing Mm. wisdom and experience to that kind of friendship. So it would be interesting to see what would have happened if George had had lived because, you know, it may have become a lifelong friendship. It may have developed into something more. It may have been, you know, it, it may have been like a, a really, sort of mutually beneficial friendship for a long standing you know you don't know and it would have been lovely and you know who knows i don't know what do you think tom ford does this wonderful thing first of all this is tom ford's directorial directorial debut i can't believe he hasn't made a film before this feels like someone's 10th film yeah it is it is pitch perfect it is wonderful um and i can't believe he's only made two films right and he does yeah, this wonderful but... thing where what but going but by what? going by how many years there were between each of his two films we are actually mm-hmm. due another film in 2023 so right okay so hopefully he's pulled his finger out and he's his, doing the bloody movie get your skates on tom do a bloody film tom um 
Well, Tom Ford does this wonderful thing where to show George's depression and his depressive suicidal state, he desaturates the image. And whenever something excites him or, or shows him uh, a little a little amuse-bouche of what could be amuse-bouche <laughs> the saturation the saturation pops up kenny makes the saturation pop a lot you know kenny brings a lot of color and a lot of freshness into george's life and he he leads george to that moment of clarity when he sees the owl fly away and he has that one moment of clarity so i would imagine george would want to keep him around he'd want to hang on to him mm. either either as a friend or as something more you know when when george gets propositioned by the the mexican sex worker who's come carlos. to hollywood yeah carlos um george turns him down he's not interested in sex but there is a spark between him and kenny especially when kenny stood there naked in front of him yeah he's that's the, that's the interesting thing isn't it is that george turns down the sex worker and then he kind of turns down Kenny as well. Or he doesn't, at least he doesn't pursue mm. him because he's not interested in sex. He's interested in, like you said, like the the sort of indefinable moments of beauty that make us feel alive. Um, you know, Tom Ford, yeah. when he talked about the film, he said, for me, the fil film isn't at all about death. It's about life. So that's what he is looking for is those flourishes that that make him feel alive and kenny definitely does that and it's interesting that, you know i love i love the uh the cinematography here the cinematography is by edouard grave no not grave growl um and he would go on to do boy erased and the way back and also the born this way video oh Lady wow Gaga. he's got his little um gay niche he has got a gay niche yeah and a ben affleck niche Oh, okay. I mean, there's definitely a crossover there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, I love the the look of this film. I think it's so, so gorgeous. The production design is by the same team as Mad Men. And on mm. the phone, uh, phoning George to tell him about the death of Jim is... Mr. John Hamm. Mr. Jonathan Hamelin. Yes, exactly. But the when George finds that photo of Jim on the beach... It's in black and white. Kenny. Kenny. No, George. George finds George it. George finds it. Yeah. Yeah, George finds it. It triggers the memory, then Kenny sees it later. Yeah. Um, it's in black and white. It's a great high contrast black and white. It's like a Helmut Newton uh, photograph, and it's really sexy, and it's very relaxed. But usually when a flashback is in black and white, it's to denote that the old times were miserable. Yeah. But because Tom Ford's already established this visual grammar where he's desaturating and saturating the image, going high contrast as if it's shot on medium format film is a genius idea for mm. a memory. You know, eventually we have these images and we've got a box of images in our house going back about 100 years of various family members. Mm -hmm. Those are the only memories we have of them. So our memories... And my mum's memories of these people are in black and white. So it's yeah. genius to have that amazing memory in black and white. And it's the photo that triggers it. It is a wonderfully visual story. And I love the fact that Tom Ford is developing this grammar that he has. Mm -hmm. This visual grammar. He didn't just meticulous. make it. Yeah, but he didn't just make it aesthetically pleasing for aesthetically pleasing sake. Like a fashion film. Mm -hmm. There's a reason for 
the visual grammar. It's it's absolute absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Well, it would be really easy for him to go style over substance because you kind of go, oh, fashion design, it's all about the style. But the genius in this film is that the style is the substance. You know, the style always has some emotional grounding or some intelligence behind it that is really engrossing and interesting and fascinating. And, you know, it doesn't it doesn't take over the film. It doesn't detract from any of the emotion in the film. It's always a story about George. But we're given this really fascinating insight into his unique perspective through the way that he literally sees the world. It's really, really Mm. clever. Yeah. Tom Ford is a visual storyteller he's not just a fashion designer Mm. who's decided to make a film he's self-funded it seven million dollars of his own money crazy is a single man a tragedy i know that's the thing because so when i watched it again the other night i knew that he did die at the end but i couldn't remember how um or, or kind of like why and stuff and i was left this time just kind of being like okay so why does he die because that does make it seem like a tragedy, I guess. On the surface, he dies, therefore it's a tragedy. But I was discussing it with my boyfriend, Tom, and he was saying, basically, it's it's the... He was always going to die, you know? And he was going to die either by his own hand or by forces outside of his control. And when he was going to do it by his own hand, he would have died a miserable man. But dying mm. through something that actually he had no control over... Um, he'd actually, at that point in his life, found a lot of happiness. So, in that sense, it's not a tragedy. Um, it's, you know, gut-wrenching for us, obviously, as viewers who've kind of fallen in love with him. But it's not the terrible ending that it could have been, I think. And in a, in a way, you know, we're shown visually, he's reunited with Jim. Yeah. Yeah, if you believe that, that's nice. And yeah, that does have real... Um, impact the fact that jim kind of appears to george at the end there is really lovely although i did get obsessed Mm. with looking at when his feet when his shoes move back off the frame i was like your foot's still in okay the foot's gone it's fine he's gone (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i saw that as well A Single Man, directed by Tom Ford. Joshua, give us a clue as to what's coming up in the next episode. Going Christmas shopping, are we? Yeah, oh, we are. yeah, we are, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, we are. Oh, yes, we are. <laughs> shopping. <laughs> yeah. My gloves, my gloves. <laughs> Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Acast, and wherever you get your pods from so you don't miss that episode. And we're on Twitter at TornStubsPod. Come let us know what you thought of a single man. We are off to find a donut. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Josh Winning. Cut! Cut!